Blessed be his name. I was asked, what do you do as a leadership mentor? I say, well, I help leaders connect the dots and see the big picture so that we can lead with wisdom and perspective. But how do we get the big picture? How do we connect the dots? I have learned that posture determines perspective. The right posture gives us the right perspective. In one of the art galleries in London, there's an entire floor that is dedicated to Italian Renaissance art. And one day, a famous art critic by the name of Dr. Robert Cummins came to examine the art pieces. And he stood before a piece of art, The Virgin and Child by Lippi, a 15th century Italian artist. And he could, he could admire the brushstrokes and the genius of the artist, but he thought to himself, hmm, something is amiss. But he couldn't put his finger upon what exactly was amiss in this art piece until an idea came to him. What if this piece of work is not meant to be commissioned to an art gallery but a prayer room? In an art gallery, you will stand and admire the piece of art, but in a prayer room, you'll be kneeling. So he changed his posture. There in the public gallery, he knelt before the painting, and when he did so and he looked up, whoa, everything was in perfect proportions. He began to see the art piece in new eyes. Posture determines perspective. Would you say that with me? Posture determines perspective. You see, when we come to Isaiah chapter 6, the chapter I want to share with you today, we've got to understand the posture of the prophet Isaiah because it was the posture that gave him perspective of a fresh vision of God. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of the most stirring chapters of the Bible. It's a chapter of vision and in that perspective and that vision, it gives us an understanding of what true revival looks like. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, I want to share with you three key statements found in that chapter that will define the heart of revival for us. But before we do so, would you bow with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to bless this time in the Word together. Father, once again, open my eyes to behold wonderful truth out of your word. And Lord, I ask, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Whatever is not from you, please scatter them to the wind so that they fall to no effect. But those things that are from you, would you deposit them deeply upon our hearts and help us not just to be hearers of the word only, but doers also that we might grow thereby. We thank you in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I saw the Lord. Now, there are three statements, profound prophetic responses and statements in Isaiah chapter 6 that gives us the understanding of what true revival looks like. And here is this first statement, I saw the Lord. Now, when Isaiah made that statement, we got to first realize what Isaiah faced 
and then what he saw, and then what he reported. What he faced was a national crisis. To appreciate the national crisis, we've got to understand a little bit about the history. The year was 739 BC, and King Uzziah has just died. He came to the throne when he was 16 years old. He ruled for 52 years. It was the golden age of prosperity for Israel. Now that the king has passed on, there is no leadership, as it were, on the throne, and Assyria was flexing its political and military muscles and extending westward. In other words, the mighty Assyrians are coming, conquering. The enemy, therefore, is right at the doorsteps, and the king is no longer on the throne. What Isaiah faced was a national crisis. Then, in the text, we see what Isaiah saw. He told us, I saw the Lord. It was a shift of focus. It was a shift of focus from Uzziah the king and now an empty throne to God in the heavens on his throne. King Uzziah has died, but God is alive. King Uzziah is in the grave. God is on the throne. There was a radical shift of focus. We have to come to that place in our spiritual pilgrimage where there is a shift of focus for us. An encounter, a personal encounter with God. And God encounters us in different ways with different individuals. But you will know when there is an encounter with God, there's something in your heart that is burning and alive, something that calls you to respond to Him, something that gives you perspective because you come to a place where your posture before God determines your perspective. It happened to me a number of years ago in the 1980s. I was a Bible college student in an OM camp, Operation Mobilization. I was leading one of the small groups of young people. That afternoon, we are going out in Seremban, Malaysia, for evangelism. It was in December, monsoon period, and if the rain came, the downpour would have compromised that evangelistic effort. So when I was crossing this large field with, with these young people uh, to, for literature distribution and evangelism, the Lord spoke to me, son, stand in the middle of this field to pray. So I sent the young people out as I stood to pray and time passed very quickly. Before I knew it, the first person coming back uh, from the evangelistic expert tapped me on the shoulder and said, Edmund, look up, look up. I looked up and had a shock of my life. I saw right in the heavens, there was a literal line across. Before me were all the bright clouds, behind me were the dark clouds, and in the place of prayer was the dividing line between light and darkness. I believe in prayer. I learned that day when we pray, oh sorry, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. There's power in prayer in the presence of God. And that day, I saw the Lord. What is needed in the global church today is for Christians to walk with the Lord in their spiritual pilgrimage, to come to a place to capture a fresh vision of God. I saw the Lord. Now notice what Isaiah reported. Isaiah chapter 6 now, verse 2 and 3. 
Above him stood the seraphims, and that's the Hebrew word meaning the fiery ones. Each has six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Verse 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now again, to appreciate this statement, we got to understand a little bit about the Hebrew grammatical construction. In Hebrew superlatives, when a word is emphasized, it's repeated twice. For example, shalom, shalom is an intensifier, but it doesn't simply mean peace, peace. It means perfect peace. So when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it is absolute truth. Now, what we have here is not a superlative. It's rather something distinctive in Hebrew grammar and almost unprecedented. We have a superlative of superlatives. Holy, holy, holy. In other words, absolutely, completely, totally, eternally holy. If you ask a theological student what holiness means, he would have given you an accurate theological answer. Holiness is separation. And that's true. Question is, how did we derive that answer, uh, that idea of separation? And what does that mean? The etymology of the word holy, kadosh, 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 is to cut. And when you make a cut, you are making a separation. Theologically, the idea applied to God is God is the creator separate from the creation. Theologians use the word transcendence of God. It means that God is otherworldly. God is different from his creation because the creator is distinctly separate, holy, unique from the creation. One commentator called holiness the moral greatness of God, and that's true. But more than just the moral greatness of God, it is the ontological uniqueness of God. It is the uniqueness of God in His being, the existential uniqueness of God. There is none like Him. So this morning when we sang that worship song, there is none like you, we are declaring the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the central attribute of God. That's why it's a superlative of superlative to describe the holiness of God. God is love, but the Bible never says love, love, love. Or God is faithful, but the Bible never says faithful, faithful, faithful is He. God is merciful. It doesn't say merciful, merciful, merciful. But holy, holy, holy. Why emphasize the holiness of God even above all the other magnificent attributes such as the love of God? Answer is because holiness is the central defining attribute of God that defines every other attribute of God. In other words, get this, His love is a holy love. His faithfulness is a holy faithfulness. His mercy is a holy mercy. His grace is a holy grace. His magnificence is a holy magnificence. Everything about God is transcendently magnificent and distinct and unique. Unique in His love, unique in His ways, unique in His power, unique in His wisdom. There is none like Him. 
God. Holy, holy, holy is what's reported by Isaiah. I saw the Lord. And that is therefore realigning a right to God's compass. I saw the Lord. In the face of a national crisis, I saw the Lord. In the face of an uncertainty, I saw the Lord. We have to come back to this place. Whatever station of life we are in, whatever circumstance we are faced, we need a fresh vision of God. The second statement he made is, woe is me. Woe is me. This is relating a right to God's conviction. Woe is me. Now please understand, this Isaiah is one of the most revered prophets of the Old Testament. Godly saint, wonderful prophet of God, but the minute he comes into the presence of God and sees a vision of God, he goes, woe is me. So unlike the spirit that is in the modern church today. In the modern church today, we don't have enough, woe is me. We have the opposite, wow is me. I saw the Lord, wow is me. And we quickly run to conduct seminars or conferences on how to see the Lord money back guaranteed or publish a book on seeing the Lord. You get the idea? Wow is me rather than woe is me. Our posture determines our perspective. You know, recently, just last month, there's a lot of talk about the wonderful Esprit revival, where the students in Esprit University was touched by the presence of God. And the revival started at the chapel when some students gathered and, and they, they prayed after that. They had an extended time of worship and they could not stop that. The presence of God was so real. There was confession of sins. There was the presence of God. Wonderful. But this Esprit revival is not the first. There are a series of revivals in the history of Esprit. One of the most notable is the 1970 Esprit revival. Started the same way. Started where a group of students gathered together and, and they came in the presence of God. They were worshipping, they were praying, they were praying, they were worshipping. And one of them started confessing his sins and in that contriteness of confession, the Spirit of the Lord fell upon them. They couldn't stop praying, they couldn't stop worshipping. There were tears, there were conviction, woe is me. And they were praying and worshipping and revival fire fell upon them. For 185 hours, the students came and they worshipped and they prayed, and then the revival stopped. Question, why did the revival stop? How did it stop? One student came up, seeing all that has happened. He proudly, before the student body in that praying uh, time, confessed his sins. But he did it in the wrong spirit. He did it in pride as he confessed his sin. And some of the students who know him knew that, that that's a different spirit. They walked out, and as they walked out, the revival died. Listen, God is not mocked. 
God is not mocked. The revival's fire started in contriteness. The revival's fire died due to conceit. Our posture not only determines perspective, but it determines the power, the presence, and the promise of God. A life in us. Oh, Isaiah came before the Lord and he cried out, Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. What is unclean lips? It's a Hebrew idiom that simply means sinful. Up to today, in some parts of the Middle East, you have the same statement, Sama Sibwata. And that means dirty lips. And the idea of dirty lips is a life that is unclean, impurity, unholy, sinful. Get this. When Isaiah came before the Lord and he saw the grandeur of God, the holiness of God, he wasn't lamenting his smallness before a great God. He was crying out in contrite confession of his sinfulness before a holy God. Woe is me, for I am undone. But this human crisis that faced Isaiah, and not just facing Isaiah, but facing us, because we are sinful before a holy God, but the good news is that God did not leave us like that. There was an altar. And there were tongues, uh, sorry, coals from the altar that the angel came and he took with the tongs and came before Isaiah. Now Spurgeon says when you read the Bible, read it with sanctified imagination. So imagine this with me. When I read about the angels coming to the altar to bring the coal towards Isaiah, Many, many years ago when I was a young Christian, the only picture I have of the angels would be like Cupid, small little wigs, cute little angels, coming to the altar to pick the coal and flutter, flutter, flutter with their little wings over to Isaiah. It's not like that. Imagine the seraphim. The seraphims were mighty angels, the fiery ones. And they don't have two little wings, they have six wings. Two cover their faces because of the holiness of God. Two cover their feet because of their reverence unto God. And with two wings they fly with. And these majestic angels, Isaiah saw a vision of them, one of them going to the altar and with tongs took out the coal. And before he knew it, zoom, like a flash of lightning, the angel was before him. He clenched his fist, he tensed up his muscles because he, he was fearing that these hot coals would hurt him. And what he thought would hurt him, healed him. And the words to him is, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. See how Isaiah reports this? Read now in verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was sealed with smoke. Verse 5, And I say, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphims flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he has taken with tongs from the altar. 
verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, I've touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You are forgiven. One of the most precious words in the whole of theology is forgiven. Precious in my own life. I said many times in my discipleship conferences that there's one word that defines Edmund Chan. I said, when I die, I want my tombstone to have just the date of my birth, the date I pass on my name, Edmund Chan, and be below it, the one word that defines me, forgiven. It's a precious word. Because that's what God does. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He doesn't leave us, as it were, to that judgment unto hell because of our sins. He loved us so much that He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, that our sins might be atoned for. That's where we get the word atonement. Christ dying on our behalf to atone for our sins. That believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, is the declaration of the gospel message. Forgiven in Christ Jesus. So I told Anne, I said, Anne, don't make me a liar. So when I die, remember my tombstone, huh? my date of birth and so on, and then the word forgiven. And she said, sure, but I also have a request. I said, what's your request, dear? I want my tombstone to be next to yours. And I want Two words to be written underneath. I said, darling, what's the next? What are the two words? She said, by me. <laughs> In our long years of marriage and pastoral ministry, we've been asked, what's the secret to a successful marriage? Married 41 years, I married my best friend and I'm grateful. And one of the things we tell the couples that we have the privilege of counselling, that I can share with you many, many principles of how to have a strong marriage. But there's one thing you should never forget. The power and the principle behind marriage is in the word forgiven. Freely you have received, freely give. Love one another as I've loved you. Forgive as I have forgiven you. Forgiven. So Isaiah now comes to the temple, has a fresh vision of God, was deeply convicted, and then realized by the power of God's magnificent grace, he is forgiven. Now comes the third statement Here am I, said me. We read now in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I say, Here am I, send me. Me. Now, notice the nature of the call of God. When, when God asked the question, it wasn't directed to Isaiah. Yes, Isaiah met him. Yes, Isaiah was convicted. He was realigning to God's com compass. I saw the Lord. He was relating to God's conviction. Woe is me and, and the blessing of his forgiveness. Now, his third great statement is, Here am I, send me. Responding aright to God's call. 
Notice the nature of that call. It wasn't Isaiah, shall you go? Will you go? I'm sending you. Will you respond? No. It was a generic question asked in the heavenly cause. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah went, Here am I, send me. His response was one of gratitude. Unlike many, many Christians in the global church, we are too resistant to respond like that. I mean, there are multitudes who have heard the call to mission. And it's like, Lord, send somebody else. Here am I, send my sister. Send, send somebody else, send my pastor, send whoever. That wasn't Isaiah's response. You see, the nature of the call wasn't something to, to force Isaiah into a response. No, it was given to him in the general court to respond on his own free will. And Isaiah respond, Here, my, send me. Gratitude. It wasn't reluctance. Nobody else, nobody else. Uh, me, it's like, oh, okay, I've got no choice. I'm the only one standing here, so. No. It was like, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Lord, here, my, here, my, send me. I'm cleansed. I'm forgiven. Send me, Lord, send me. Gratitude. Our posture determines our perspective, determines our renewal, determines our response. It makes all the difference. And today God is sending us, whether young or old, male or female, um, whether rich or poor, highly educated or lowly educated, God is sending His church unto the lost to declare the message of Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. And today the question remains for us in the church, the house of God, the believers of Christ, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? My time is caught up with me. I want to close with a fascinating thing I've learned. Mercedes-Benz in the 1980s. This luxury car company took their esteemed car and got it driven in a fast speed to ram into concrete walls. They did it over and over again for one purpose. They were researching for an invention and eventually they perfected it called the airbag. The airbag. And it was a game changer. It was a breakthrough. And the surprising thing was Mercedes-Benz took this, this uh, invention, went to all the major car manufacturers on this planet and gave it to them free of charge. The National News Agency interviewed the lead engineer and asked, you have invented something that's a game changer, something that will put Mercedes-Benz as a distinct platform over and above all your competitors. Why would you give it away free of charge? And the lead engineer says, because when you're something so important, we cannot keep it to ourselves. We cannot have something so important and not share it. It's too important 
not to share. Mercedes-Benz is not the first to do it. In 1959, Volvo have the engineers and they invented the three-point V-shaped seatbelt that we have today. It's safer, it saved millions of lives. And the person who, the engineer who invented it, Bolins himself was interviewed and he says, I intend this invention to be given free of charge. And so true enough, as they invented in 1959, Niels Bolins uh, and, and the Volvo uh, company took this invention of the modern seat belt and gave it free of charge to every other car manufacturing company. Why? It's too important not to share. The shepherds who watched their flock by night have the angels came to declare the message that a child is born, a king is sent, a saviour is given. They were so excited, they went away telling everyone what they saw, what they heard, that the message that Jesus has come, a child, a saviour is born. It's a message too important not to share. Today, the same question God gave to Isaiah is the question he gave to us. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I pray that as Isaiah, we will have the sense of gratitude as we come aligning to God's compass, relating aright to God's conviction and responding aright to God's call, we might say unto God, Here am I, Lord, send me. And the only way you can do that with the right response unto the Lord is to understand the principle that our posture determines our perspective, our renewal, and our response. Would you bow with me in prayer? Today the Lord is here. He's speaking to each one of us. And my prayer is that none of us leave this sanctuary without a sense of the presence of God touching us. He speaks to you. He draws you. He invites you into His presence, into His love, into His life. And perhaps for some of you, you haven't made that most important decision in your life to open your heart, to have your heart softened, to have your mind enlightened, to have your real will directed to the compass of God's leading for your life. But today is the opportunity. Today is God's invitation to you I want to give you, therefore, the opportunity if you haven't made that decision yet, today is the day of decision. Today is the time you say, Lord, here am I. Change me. Here am I. I need a fresh vision of God Almighty. And how do you respond to God's invitation? You respond by faith. How do you express that faith through a simple prayer? But pastor, how do I pray? I will lead you sentence by sentence. It's just three simple things we say to God. I'm sorry I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus for me to die on the cross for my sins. Please, Lord Jesus, come to my life. I will lead you in this prayer. If you have not made that decision and today you are saying yes to God, to open your heart to Him. 
for Him to come into your life. Right now, pray this prayer with me in your heart, sentence by sentence. Dear God, I'm sorry I'm a sinner. Please forgive my sins. Woe is me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Lord Jesus, please come into my life. I receive you today into my heart. If you have prayed this prayer with me, you've never prayed this prayer before, but today is the day you prayed this prayer with me, I want to pray for you. Right now, would you raise up your hand high? Pastor, I prayed this prayer. Yes, God sees your hand. Anyone else? I want Jesus into my life. Yes, God sees your hand. God sees your hand. Anyone else? Raise it high. Today, God is here giving you the invitation. God sees your hand. Anyone else? Raise your hand high. Yes, God sees your hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? God is here telling you, yes, God sees your hand. I want to step into your life. And you're saying to God, here am I, here am I. Raise up your hand. If you've never prayed this prayer before, but right now you pray with me, I want to pray for you. Anyone else? Yes, God sees your hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? Yes, God sees your hand. One last time. Anyone else? Raise your hand high. Pastor, pray for me. Yes, God sees your hand. God sees your hand. Yes, God sees your hand. pray together. Keep your hands high. Heavenly Father, I pray for these ones with their hands lifted up to you, saying, Here am I. Lord, would you come into their lives and change them with the glory of your presence, with the joy of their salvation. We thank you for that, dear God. You may put down your hands. I want to pray for the rest of us. For those of us who are Christians, understand our greatest need in the global church is a fresh vision of God. And today, if you say in your heart, that's what I want, Lord, I need, and I desire a fresh vision of God. If this is your desire, right now, I want to pray for you. Would you raise your hand high right now? I want a fresh vision of God. I want my life to dynamically change. I want to live as a missional Christian on a grand adventure of faith with God. Raise up your hand high. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the Lord will work His beautiful work, His marvellous work of grace into your life. Keep it high. There are many of you, keep it high. Heavenly Father, I pray for the many whose hands are lifted up. I pray, Lord, that as they stand for you, you will send them forth with the grace and the power that's in Jesus Christ and the empowering of the Spirit of the living God upon each of them as a missional Christian. For those of you who raise your hand right now, would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? We're going to make a stand together as, as disciples of Christ, as people of God. Stand with me. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for each one of us as we stand in your holy presence, do a deep and abiding work of God in our lives so that we can come, Lord, from the woe is me to I've seen the Lord receive His forgiveness and here am I. Send me. I thank you for this, dear God. In Jesus' magnificent name, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, 
please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.